Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1991 film, The Silence of the Lambs. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's video store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Uh, Barrett, we talked last week about how this is a film that uh, both of us were revisiting after a fairly long period of time. I know for me, I haven't seen this since the early 90s. Um, mm-hmm. I'm fairly certain I didn't see this when it came out because I would have been... 14 but i I think like by 92 or 93 i probably saw it um so i'm curious what is your history with this film yeah i would i saw it when it came out and um you know i guess my history kind of involves um jody foster anthony hopkins and jonathan demi um i will make a confession i've had a crush on jody foster since uh, she was in the tv version of paper moon in 1974 um, so she's somebody I've always uh, I've always admired as an actress, and uh, of course it's fresh in my mind that she just won the Oscar for The Accused uh, the year the year before. Um, Anthony Hopkins. I know we talked about Hopkins in the past. I can't remember if I had mentioned that my relationship with Hopkins goes back to seeing him on Broadway in 1975 in the original production of Equus, um, and that was a <laughs> and interestingly enough, of course, he plays a psychiatrist in that in that play, um, and that pretty much blew me away with the idea that theater could engage um, the mind as much as that did. And then finally, Jonathan Demme. Um, I first encountered Demme with one of his earlier films called Melvin and Howard, which is a kind of quirky little film that came out in 1980 about a based on a true story of a guy who claimed to have a will from Howard Hughes based on picking him up by the side of the road in, in Nevada. Um, so th- those three things kind of all came together for me in, uh, in being interested in this film. I'm glad you brought up Demi. Um, cause I'm sort of curious when he made this film, like who was Jonathan Demi? Cause he goes on to when he wins the best director for this film. And then I think he wins it for Philadelphia two years later. Yeah, yeah he does. So, so who was he going into this film? Yeah, this would have been considered a departure from him because for him because he had most recently done um, a couple of kind of comedies, uh, something wild uh, with Melanie Griffith and Married to the Mob with um, uh, Michelle, Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, in fact, he, that's who he wanted as you, uh, to to actually star in Silence of the Lambs. Initially, she was one of his first choices, so he was kind of regarded as a guy who kind of did. Um, sort of lightweight, you know, funny films. But the fact is he had a, a, a history. His first film actually back in 1973 was one of those women prison dramas called Canned Heat. So, and, and then he had done a neo-noir, which I had never even heard of until I did a little bit of research. He did a neo-noir in 1979. I can't remember the name of it. Um, so he had actually dabbled in other genres, but he certainly had made his name more recently before this film with, with Mary to the Mob and Something Wild. So one of the things that we talked about uh, last week was kind of wondering, how does this movie hold up? We remember like really liking Hopkins, really liking Foster in this movie, but you even, you seem to express a little bit of concern of like, I hope this holds up on rewatch. So, uh, so what was your sense of that? I, th- I think it holds up really well. I mean, I, 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 you know, there's a lot of ways in which movies can be dated. I mean, there's sometimes superficial ways just in terms of fashions or you notice the lack of certain technologies. You know, we've talked about that in the past. Oh, if only it had been a cell phone in this, in this scene. Um, I, I, you know, I didn't, feel, I didn't feel that that was a problem with this film. In fact, in some ways, I felt that the feminist um, theme or subtext of the film was even more 
relevant now than it was in in, in 91. And I think there's something about the the and and also we've certainly had our share of um serial killers and other kinds of uh crime in the in the last 30 years that doesn't make Hannibal Lecter seem in any way unbelievable or over the top. I mean there are over the top elements of the film but they don't in any way date it. So I think the fundamental conflicts that the film is about are still significant conflicts today. Yeah, I, I mean, in, in lots of ways, I and this is not a new idea, what I'm about to say, but this movie presaged a lot of kind of things that were going to become popular in pop culture in terms of, um, I mean, this is not exactly a police procedural, but it has elements of that, the the sort of serial killer true crime thing. Now, this is fictional, but it it has the feel of a lot of true crime documentaries. And it I feel like it's almost like sets a template for thinking um, for thinking about some of those things. Um, so many things you mentioned, I want to, I, I want to circle back to. So, but I have them in my notes, so we'll, we'll definitely get to them. Um, I found that there was a lot of power in rewatching this movie because my memory, actually, I'm going to, before I say anything, what was your memory of this film before rewatching it? Like, what are the things that you're like, oh yeah, this is, this is, these are the things I remember about this. Yeah, certainly, certainly the initial interview uh with uh with hannibal um that was pretty powerfully in my mind um uh, obviously the uh well when i say the escape scene parts of the escape scene the uh uh the the damn the what he does to the policeman and that kind of grand guignol scene of the cage lit up and the policeman spread eagle you know that was an image i remembered um and then of course the end um the subterfuge with the, the cameras being outside the wrong house and then Jodie Foster inside the house. But interestingly enough, both my wife and I misremembered how that scene ended because Amy said to me, one of the things I don't like about the film is that she gets rescued. And we both thought somehow that the police burst in before Buffalo Bill was brought down. And I'm watching the film, and I thought, how could I have thought that? You know, he click, the, the gun clicks, and she turns around and shoots him dead. And there's no rescue of her or anything like that. So it was what I both remembered and misremembered that came back to me. I think it's interesting. I mean, you, you talked about sort of the, the, the kind of feminist read on this film. And, and it was interesting. In the time, there were people who were very critical of it in terms mm -hmm. of what it um, – that, that mean, that it was a movie about uh, – uh, people who basically capture, kill, and skin women like like that 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 because Buffalo all of Buffalo Bill's um, uh, victims are women. But when you look at the film, like it is about this, it is about actually two two women. I think are really interesting in this film. Starling is somebody who is underestimated by almost everyone around her, except for Lecter, almost to a certain degree. He's like the uh, he's kind of the only one who's like who realizes what she's capable of because. He, he is the best judge of, uh, I was going to say judge of character, but that's not what I mean. Judge of like uh, a person's capacity, maybe. Um, he's good at that. He's good at reading a person that way. Um, and then you have, uh, you have Catherine Martin, who you could think, I mean, she is the, she's the victim at the center of this, but it's so interesting how she is not uh, passive. Like even when she's down in this sub-basement well, she's plotting like, okay, I'm going to get this dog. Cause that's something that is literally precious to him. It's named precious. And I'm going to use, if, if I'm a hostage, I'm going to switch this into a different kind of hostage situation. And it's like, 
I forgot about that. I, so, so, and, you know, and then, and then as you say that, you know, Foster is, or, or uh, Starling is um, in the end, she's the only one who's in the right place. And, and, you know, and, and as that, uh, as that scene plays out, I will say one of my things about remembering this now, again, I probably saw this when I was 14 or 15. So I was a little more impressionable than I, than I would be as seeing it as an adult. So I was kind of afraid to rewatch it because my sense was, this is a really like gory, disturbing mm. movie. That was my memory of it because I had seen a lot less, you know, yeah. when I first saw it. And actually my wife had mentioned this movie a few years ago and she's like, yeah, that was a great movie, but I never want to watch that again. And it was interesting because as I watched it, I watched it by myself and I was like, oh, and I think you would actually love this. Like it's not all the things that we remember from it, I think are not as, I mean, it is gruesome, but it's not like, those aren't center stage as much. And I think part of that's the rewatch. It's like, yeah, I know those things are there. So I'm not so shocked by them that I'm missing the other parts of the story and the other things that are going on. This is also a movie that um, is restrained in a kind of way. It doesn't give you a lot of stuff, but the, but when it does give you things, it's they make such an impression. So whether that is sort of the disturbing gore or even Lecter himself, I mean, Hopkins is on screen for like 20 minutes in this movie. It's a two hour movie and he's barely in it, but he's the thing you remember from it, um, which yeah. is also amazing. Yeah. 24 minutes and 56 seconds. Um, it's the second shortest performance to win a best actor, actor, best actor Oscar. Um, and I know, and, I, and that was something I really noticed a lot, Sam, in the second part of the film you know, or the last third of the film after he escapes, it's interesting how the, 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 the film's always been focused on Clarice, but it really becomes about Clarice. And you almost, you know, in a sense, kind of, you almost forget about him for a while. I remember thinking about 10 minutes before the end, wait a minute, we haven't seen Hannibal for a long time. I wonder what, you know, wonder what, what he's up to. The other thing I would say, I think you exactly captured my feeling. It's like I was almost um, bracing myself for gore. And I think maybe part of it is when I saw this in 91, um, I don't know if it's fair to say that there weren't as many gory movies around or I just hadn't seen as much gore. Whereas now, I mean, you can see gore on TV that you would only have seen in the past in certain R-rated films. And so I think the whole cultural depiction of um, graphic violence uh, is has been ramped up since Silence of the Lamb. So as you said, it ends up looking pretty restrained, which means that those moments that are explicitly gory, the very few moments there are, it's more a lot of blood uh, than it is a lot of flesh. Um, that has an even, you know, greater effect. So have you seen the movie Manhunter? No, I thought you might bring up both the prequel and the sequels. And so I'll say right immediately, this is the only Hannibal Lecter film I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I have. I also have not seen any of the, I have no interest in, particularly in, um, in seeing, I forget even what, is it, uh, is it Hannibal? And then Hannibal um, is the next one. And then, and then Red Dragon right. is, yeah. Um, although I, I am interested in seeing Manhunter, I've, I've, I feel like that's a movie that's got that was unsuccessful, but has been reappraised in a number of ways. And then that's, um, I've heard a lot of people talk about that, so that's something I wouldn't mind watching. Well, it's interesting that both Manhunter and Hannibal have very good directors at their helm. You know, Hannibal, uh, uh, Manhunter is Michael Mann, and Michael Mann's kind of hit or miss for me, but he's a good director. And then uh, Hannibal is Ridley Scott, uh, another kind of hit or miss director for me. He can be really good or not. Yeah. Um, so another question that I had is, is this the type of movie that on paper 
you would tend to be drawn to? Because I will say for me, not so much. I loved no. it. I got it so interesting. But but if you were to just tell me, yeah, here's what it is. It's like, that probably doesn't feel like it's for me. No, in fact, I started making a list of um, the kind of, if, if, I, if you were to ask me about watching a horror film, I started making a list of the kind of, quote, horror films I would watch. And I would say, none of them is bloody. Uh, or or uh, mo I gravitate towards psychological horror. And I think that's one of the things that makes Silence of the Lambs a special film in that I think it's primarily psychological horror with just a touch of some of the more traditional kind of grand guignol uh, elements. But yes, normally I wouldn't go towards a near a film like this. And it gets back to your first question. It was a lot because it was Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say uh, another movie that I thought a lot about while watching this is a movie that I absolutely love. Um, and that is the 2007 uh, David Fincher's Zodiac. I love the movie Zodiac. And, and it was, it was fun to, to, to like, that's a movie that I every couple of years I'll sit down and watch again, because it's, it's this long, it's longer than this. It's this long sprawling movie. Yeah. Um, and it's about, um, you know, I'm, and I think I've said this before that I'm not somebody who's particularly interested in um, like murder mysteries, <laughs> but I am interested. Like I find the investigation stuff really interesting. I find the profiling stuff in this really, um, really fascinating. Um, so this is a, a weird connection, but I'm, I always think about like um, in a mystery, I'm, I'm far more interested in, Columbo than I am in say an Agatha Christie mystery in Columbo. You always know who the murderer is. And it's more about how does this person figure it out where in, in like in this movie, you, there is no mystery as to who Buffalo bill is. Like you see him, right. you, you, you know, you're, you're, it's about them tracking and trying to figure this stuff out. Um, that stuff I'm really interested in. If this was a movie where it was, where the central question was who is Buffalo bill? I, I, I would not be as interested that I, I that so so this this is something which um, fits well in the kind of the, to the kind of sort of mystery thriller type thing that I like because it's not really a mystery, right? No, that, that, you're right. It's it's interesting. The movie, you know, quite early on puts the audience in a position of knowing exactly who Buffalo Bill is. Um, I think that one of the attractions you've also mentioned, Sam, is uh, why one of the reasons why we're fascinated by lecture. Um, I think. You know, we're, we're fascinated by um, his intelligence, right? And you'd mention his insight into people, but the fact that he's got such a such a brain, in a sense, is part of, I think, what makes him appealing to us. Um, I want to do a quick aside, because you mentioned Zodiac, and this is this is a related only to Zodiac, but I have to insert this, and that is, I just watched Bong Joon-ho's uh, early film. Uh, Bong Joon-ho just got the Oscar last year for Parasite. I watched his earlier film called Memories of, of a Murder from 2004. And throughout that film, I kept saying to myself, this is the Korean version of Zodiac. So anyway, hmm. that's just a recommendation to you. Um, so maybe let's talk about, about Lecter. Uh, another big takeaway from this, uh, and this is, this is, again, the value of the rewatch, is this happens whenever somebody creates a pop, a character who so, becomes so pervasive in pop culture that you see it sort of imitated and parodied in all kinds of ways that, that in my head, I was almost going in thinking like, yeah, Lecter's not so great because I've seen this 10,000 times people doing like impressions or lines or things like this kind again, this is gonna be a weird comparison, kind of like mid early mid nineties, Jim Carrey mm. that 
that guy that was so imitated by not even like imitated by uh sort of parodies but just people around you like doing lines or imitating him where i'm like yeah i don't really like those movies but then if you go back and actually watch like a like dumb and dumber or something like that you're like this guy's un- i mean he's like a comet you know in terms of mm-hmm. how crazy funny he's. and i felt the same way about hopkins in this where when i was watching him i realized oh i forgot that the original thing actually is this magnetic stunning just amazing performance and so i'm glad i'm glad that i saw it because in my head lecter was kind of a caricature and he is so amazing in this movie and i, and I think i think part of that is is the fact the screen time i think you know without having seen the sequels i'm going to critique them in saying that i think that one of the key to this film is it gives you just enough of lecture i think that i think that because the because the, the hero the protagonist is clarice and what's important is the role that that lecter plays for her uh and so i think that to me, that's part of what makes him interesting. The other thing that Hopkins manages to do, and I'm not quite sure how he pulls this off, is that I don't, I, I accept him as lecture. I don't keep thinking, oh, that's Anthony Hopkins giving a bravura performance. And it, that's always the danger of those kinds of performances. I think about Dustin Hoffman as Rain Man, for example, you know, where you're, you're, you're admire, spend so much time admiring the craft that you don't get actually lost in the performance. But I think, Hopkins, the way maybe it's just because of how he uh, immerses himself in the character. You have no trouble. There's no Anthony Hopkins sticking out. It's like he's all he's all Lecter. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I also love with with Lecter. There are at least two, maybe three people who, before Clarice Starling gets to Lecter, like walk him through either walk them walk her through either advice or like instructions. So by the time you get to the end of that hallway, in my head, I'm panicked. I'm running through all the things not to do. And then she sits down and it's like, and she starts to break those rules right away. And I get, so it makes you so concerned for her and worried for her. Um, And so, which is great because it also points out another thing that's, I think, powerful in this film is like, Again, it's a film of people underestimating her, people looking down on her, often physically looking down on her because Jodie Foster is not a tall person and they always surrounded her by tall men. So she's always a foot shorter than everyone around her. So it makes it, it, it even for, it forces you into a position or in, I shouldn't say forces you, it invites you into a position of having this almost like um, <laughs> parental fear for her. And then you realize as the movie goes on, she is as she's one of the most capable people in this movie, but it sets you up to feel a certain way about her. I mean, I I was taken aback how much of this movie is about people looking at Clarice. Mm -hmm. I mean, when she's at Quantico and she's running and there's people going the other direction and you just see everybody turn and look at her, you see, um, uh, Crawford, look at her, you see Lecter, Mm -hmm. look at her, you see Chilton, look at her, you see, Uh, Buffalo, like it's it's like this is about her being observed and her being observed and objectified in in kinds of ways, and it's it's that's the kind of thing on a rewatch. I was able to pay attention to those things more because I was less concerned about some of these other things, and that that was uh, that seemed really powerful. And it leads to one of the things that I love, and this is a, a Jonathan Demi thing. I love how much he uses people addressing camera. Um, and, and, you know, and how frames are shot because it puts you in the Starling POV. 
that it's it's usually people talking to Starling and it's right at right at the camera, which reminded me of two of my favorite things we watched in in this. It reminded me of the Passion of Joan of Arc, which is a whole oh. bunch of people addressing camera. Um, and in an interesting kind of way, you have a a female protagonist surrounded by men in that in that movie, just like in this. Um, and it also made me think of Errol Morris, like Errol Morris. That's how he likes to shoot his stuff. So, um, yeah. So I I I loved that the use of that. Maybe I'm just a sucker for it, but every time I see it, and it's also done sparingly enough where it's not like the whole film is that way. But whenever you see somebody addressing camera, it it stands out to me, and it sort of pull. It's like it grabs me, grabs me by the collar, and pulls me in. Yeah, I want to. I want to get back to what you were saying about uh, how, how how much of the movie is about people looking at Clarice or Clarice being looked down on. Because, um, you know, one of the famous theories of cinema is Laura Mulvey, who talks about the male gaze and the idea that cinema, uh, the camera, objectifies women in a kind of dehumanizing, manipulative ways. Um, and you talked early on about the fact that the film is actually actually came under some criticism. Uh, as a result, and not as a film about um, discussing the role of a of a young woman de- woman demonstrating her you know her her capability, but it's about a film that dehumanizes women. So I think it was Betty Friedan in an inter- in an interview said you know that she she pre- would prefer a Playboy centerfold uh, over over this film in terms of the treatment of women. So I think part of that, but what what I think is so smart about the film is what you just addressed, and that is that. It's not only their gaze at her, but it also she she turns it around at the same time, and the camera turns around at, at the same time. So I find it much more a film about that's it's in a dialogue about that gaze, uh, and um, and it's not about simply accepting male power, but it's the way in which she asserts herself over and against those power structures. Absolutely. Um- Another controversy of this movie uh, was with sort of with with the Buffalo Bill character uh, um, for a portrayal of transgender portrayal of potentially gay characters, although it's kind of unclear. And and, and they even address this within the film where where Lecter, I mean, where you have Lecter and Starling who are both. uh, Kind of experts in psychology of certain things saying, you know, I think Starling says that. transgender people are that that they 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 aren't inherently violent and he's like well he, well bill's not really transgender he's this um yeah. you know he he just thinks that he is and this becomes a plot point as they're as they're trying to chase down who it could be but um that was a big controversy at the time so i'm curious your thought of how does this play you know 30 years later it, we're in a culture that views um lgbt plus lifestyles differently I, yeah, that's a really good question, Sam. And I think that that is one way in which we could talk about the film being very much of its time and place, because you could argue that if the film were made today, that the film wouldn't be made today, because Buffalo Bill would have would have resolved whatever his conflict is. That the, that the reason why he's conflicted is because the culture at the time doesn't really allow for those kinds of um, ambiguous uh, sexual identities, you know, that, that we now, that we now have, we have, you know, we have a whole spectrum as you just indicated, whereas in the early, late eighties, early nineties, you had, well, you're, you're gay, you're straight or you're bi. Um, and, and that's really about it. So the very fact that he's confused and acts out of that confusion in a violent way is in a sense, 
an indictment of of the society of, of the time. Uh, the film doesn't really play that card, but it seems to me that would be one way to think about it. Um, in a totally different direction, um, I know I know that uh, you're a, a person who loves words and puns and things like this. Are you an anagram person? Yeah, I like anagrams. In fact, it really irritated me that Clarice got to that anagram before I did. <laughs> <laughs> Because I will say I am not an anagram person. So whenever, whenever a plot, whenever there's a movie where a plot sort of requires an anagram, I'm I'm always frustrated because I'm like I, no one would have ever come to that. But then I realize, well, maybe there are people who are always looking for anagrams. Does that seem realistic? Like her, because she's like she seems like the one. No, it is. I do appreciate that there are moments where you see her. She's taking notes. And she'll take something he said and she'll just keep writing it in different ways. So we're seeing her do the work on that stuff. Well, you know, I, uh, yes, I do like anagrams. I also, I also like Scrabble. And um, I, just, I just watched a film a couple weeks ago called uh, Word Wars, which is about Scrabble champions. And watching that film and watching how those guys saw combinations on their tiles, uh, on their uh, tiles, on their racks, um, much more quickly than I did. Uh, help me think, yeah, I mean, I like anagrams. I'm not the best person in the world in anagrams. And, you know, if I were Clarice and I know two things, right? I know that there's no way Hannibal's going to give them a straight answer. And two, that Lewis' friend has got to be something else. Um, the thing that was hard for me is to get to the solution as quickly as she got to it. But I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I bought that. I bought that. Um, I, I, I loved the, the, you, you talked about the, um, the kind of sleight of hand that they do at the end with the, where you have the, the FBI raid on that house and the way that it's cut. So, so whenever we're inside, we're in Jane Gum's house, uh, Buffalo Bill's house. And whenever we're outside, you see the, the FBI coming. And then the, the moment when he opens the door and you see Starling and, uh, again, it it's it goes back to what I was saying before about how you have this sort of like terror for her, but then you also are like, he's right there, like you got it, like you're you're like proud of her and concerned for her, and yeah, like I um I gotta say I don't I mean maybe that's something that that was in that was a, a storytelling move that happened a lot in movies. I I I can't say that 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 I had seen that before. Um, so that was. You know, maybe that was just a product of not having seen a lot of movies in the early '90s, but that was one that kind of blew my mind. Um, where where you feel like you're headed one way, and then all of a sudden you snap into this other thing. I I, I love. I think we've talked about this too, Sam. I, I love films that do things that are kind of meta cinematic, uh, and so I I, lo I love that moment in the film because it operates at, at two different levels, right? It it operates as a kind of, um, as you said, as a kind of sleight of hand, as a magic trick. Uh, but at the same time, it's a joke uh, because what Demi is doing is he's saying, well, I took you in, be, uh, I, I fooled you, um, and I was able to create suspense and misdirection because you have bought into a Hollywood convention, uh, which is continuity editing. Uh, so you've been, making the, you've been making a certain assumption about the relationship between these two places. Uh, and it also, it captures that wonderful way in which um, film simply can eliminate both space and time uh, through edits. So, I, so I, I love the fact that it kind of works at different, at different levels. Um, this is a movie that had 
um, a very interesting uh, produ- not pr- pre-production, I would say. Like um, mm-hmm. you, you mentioned some of these, but this has a ton of uh, different cast options. That I mean, it's like it seems like they were really trying to um, to sell this movie to a lot of people. Now, with all these, it's hard to know like how serious they were. But can I just run through some potential some potential stars of this and get your thoughts? Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, th- the first choice for Lecter was Sean Connery. No, <laughs> I, you know I lo- I love Sean Connery and and Connery Connery can be menacing in certain kinds of roles. So uh, and of course we we enjoyed uh, Connery and um, and um, the man who would be king, but I no I can't I can't see him as Lecter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I think for all of these, we're going to say no because I think they got it right. Um, well, but it's just. Well, but I, I might I might say yes, Sam. Let's see okay. what happens. Uh, we have the the two of the stalwarts of seventy cinema, uh, Pacino and De Niro. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past De Niro. Um, Pacino, absolutely not. Um, the the problem with De Niro by night this time is career is he's starting to become kind of mannered. Uh, and, and of course, Pacino has always been mannered, but I, 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 I don't know if he could quite disappear into the role the way he would need to, but I give him, he might yeah, give him a shot. And this was the same year that De Niro was in Cape Fear. So he was already playing. Yeah. He was already doing a villain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dustin Hoffman. No, <laughs> uh, this, this is one where, where I think the character, the actor would be too young. Although I'd be interesting to think about if they re not that they ever should, but if they remade this movie, uh, Daniel day Lewis. Well, yeah. Daniel day Lewis can do anything. Uh, yeah, he, he would have been too, you're right. He would have been too young for the role, but absolutely. If they made the movie 10 years later, I could see him doing it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there is the, there's the, the, this name comes up twice because part of the production of this is this, this uh, book was originally purchased by uh, Gene Hackman to make. So he was going to yeah. direct it. And it's unclear whether he was going to play Crawford or whether he was going to play Lecter. I think he'd be great as Crawford. Yeah, he'd be a great Crawford. And this is the second film we've talked about where Gene Hackman was mentioned right back when we were doing um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was possibly up for McMurphy. Yeah, he could do Crawford, but he couldn't do Lecter. Uh, and then for Starling, <clears throat> uh, three names. You mentioned Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, Meg Ryan was another person they were looking at. You know, interesting enough, I, I would, I would be more interested in seeing Meg Ryan try to pull it off than I wouldn't in Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, but I can't imagine either of them doing what Foster did. Mm-hmm. So. And then Laura Dern was the only other name that I saw. Yeah, actually Laura Dern, uh, Laura Dern, I think it could, Laura Dern of those three, she's probably the most likely one, but she was not, she didn't have the box office draw. There's something like Jodie Foster house. Yeah. And I, and I will say, and this is a product of, of my age and sort of when I came to films and things like this, like one of my revelations, this is going to sound a lot like um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest is Jodie Foster's great. Like I, in my head, I, she's not somebody that I think a lot about, you know, I, I don't know that I've seen a lot of Jodie Foster movies, but, and, and the other weird thing is that in my head, I thought that, both Lecter or both Hopkins and Foster were so much older than they were. Like mm-hmm. when I, cause I watched it when I was 15. So like everybody oh, yeah. seems old and I went back and watched this and I'm like, I had to check how old Jodie Foster like actually is to be like, wow, I didn't, I don't think of her being, um, and I realized she was a child actress, but I don't think of her being young. I think of her as like older Jodie Foster. Cause those are mm-hmm. the movies that kind of more came out. 
Um, and and so like I was kind of blown away by how much I really loved her in this movie. Yeah. Because um, I don't think I had an opinion about her, and uh, mm-hmm. I thought she was fantastic. Yeah, I think it's probably her best performance of the ones that I've seen. Although she's very good in some later films. Well, speaking of Fincher films, she's very good in Panic Room. Um, another interesting thing about this movie: this was released in February of 1991, yeah. which is uh, uh, famously referred to as Dumpuary. Like it's when yeah. like nothing good comes out in February. I mean, occasionally you'll get like Get Out or something like that. You know, which which manages to sort of grab and and actually that's very similar to this movie where I, where it came out at a weird a weird point in the year and because of that I think it also like could own weeks and weeks of the box office because of that but um, yeah it's it's it it's very interesting to see a, a February release win Best mm-hmm. Picture yeah yeah I, I think I think that the effect of the summer blockbusters and then all the you know the October November even late December releases I think that's been ratcheted up a lot more in the last 30 years as well I think that probably is another factor I don't think this had I, I haven't looked to see what came out in late later in 91 but I don't think maybe the field was as strong I forgot I forgot to check on what the other nominees were for the year yeah there are there are a couple of years in the 90s where it's just uh, it's just an incredible set of, of films I feel I know like Feel like JFK was this year, um, mm-hmm. which is a complicated movie. I think like Bugsy came out this year, which oh, yeah, was, yeah. you know, like yeah, which saying both of those point to it wasn't a great Oscar year. No, no, yeah, yeah, but that both of those were nominated. Um, the last thing that I had, and this is thinking about kind of um, connections to movies that we've watched. Uh, I was thinking about sort of this, just the, the interesting, strange relationship between Starling and Lecter. And not that it's the same relationship, but it made me think of earlier in this run of uh, movies on this podcast, you did a series of movies that were about kind of these unique or kind of strange relationships. And there's a degree to which it sort of reminds me of let the, let the right one in a little bit, just in terms of mm-hmm. like thinking about these two people who... Um, foster this kind of connection um in a in a you know and and where one of them is a a literal monster you know but like but thinking about thinking about that relationship um so it it just it made me think back to that movie and how fondly i felt about let the right one in so do you have other things you want to talk about with yeah yeah, i want to pick up on that actually sam um the notion of lecter is a monster because um, I see a couple of different critical perspectives on that, and a couple of different ways of thinking about his relationship with Clarice. Uh, actually, I, actually, there were kind of three different ones that I ran across. One was suggesting that the relationship is a kind of a beauty and the beast relationship. You know, that um, she's the beauty who sees the humanity in the, in the beast. Um, so it kind of turns it into almost like a, you know, an archetypal kind of fairy tale relationship in, in that in that respect and then you have Roger Ebert has a, his, he has a very fine essay on the film it's one of his best great movies essays um, and he sees Lecter as as amoral because he is only doing what he's kind of programmed to do he compares Lecter to other movie monsters like Dracula and uh, King Kong uh, and says, you know, you can't you can't judge them on a moral scale because they're just doing what their nature leads them to do. Um, and then he he throws in a very interesting um, twist at the end where he says that we identify with Clarice and fear for her just like Lecter. 
which is kind of an interesting move. Um, but then there's the other argument who says, um, another critic I really like, we talked last week about some of the go-to our go-to sources, is a critic named Stephen Gray Danis. Uh, and I tend to like his his critique as well. And he says Lecter may be evil, but he's still a man, not a monster or a demon. And and that's why he responds to Clarice because she continues to see him as a human being. And I think that's that's the the direction I tend to go in because that first interview um, and throughout, she always calls him Doctor Lecter. Um, she always she always treats him with respect uh, as an equal. Not as somebody that she looks down on, not as somebody to whom she's superior. She's a little afraid of him, and I think he respects that because she should be. So I, 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 I like that read on it, that it's because she recognizes his humanity in a way that other people no longer do, uh, that that's, that's what he responds to. Wow, it's so interesting to hear you say that. And again... I I apologize for this connection because it is not, I, I am not making a one-to-one -one connection, but just listening to you say that makes me think about if you, if you cherry pick some of the sentences you said there, you could connect it to another Anthony Hopkins film with, that we watched, which is the elephant man, right? That this, this person who is viewed as a monster, but like some people are able to see the humanity. Now, John Merrick is not Hannibal Lecter. Like, like I, I want to be really careful to separate those things because one of those is about this a physical appearance versus the reality underneath, and the other is just about the complexity of a of a tr deeply troubled human being. But right. but it's it, it's interesting, you know, that that you have Hopkins in the other role in that in that movie. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because one of the reasons why Hopkins was considered for this role was because of his performance in The Elephant Man. Um, that was, uh, you know, out of a catalog of all the things that Hopkins had done, that was one of the ones that they actually had in mind. Anything else with this movie? I just want to mention, just gets back to what we talked about at the beginning, uh, Sam, about, you know, we, neither of us has a proclivity for watching horror films. Um, Hollywood does not have a proclivity for honoring horror films. So there are only six films that could be classified as horror that have been nominated for best, best film. Uh, so it would be The Exorcist, uh, Jaws, which, interesting, call that a horror film, um, The Sixth Sense, again, so very psychological, Black Swan, and the one that you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, Get Out. Um, and of those, of that lineup, um, Silence of the Lambs is far and away the one that's closest to a traditional horror film in terms of some element of gore. All those others are really psychological uh, horror films. Right. And at the same time, uh, that was one of the other questions that I had, which is like, how would you classify this genre wise? Like, I don't think of this as like a horror film. I, I think I this is a thriller to me. I think it's a mystery thriller. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. I, and, and as you said earlier, almost, almost a police procedural. Right. Uh, right. I would say, I mean, to me, The Sixth Sense is more of a horror film only because it has a, there it has like a supernatural element to it. And it's, and, and, you know, clearly because you have ghosts in it or, you know, dead people in it. Um, the Exorcist, which I, I have to admit, I've never seen. Um, mm -hmm. That strikes me as, uh, again, there is, a, there's, I know a lot about that film. There is a deeply spiritual element to that mm -hmm. as well. So it's like, well, that, that seems to qualify more so than like, these are about monstrous people. And I realize a horror film can be that way, but usually there needs, in my sense, there, in my mind, there needs to be something um, that 
pulls it out of reality a little bit to be a to be what I think of as a horror film. But that may also be the fact that I am a child of the eighties and nineties, so I have a particular view of what horror is. <laughs> Which is maybe not the best version of of what horror can be. <laughs> so uh, so what do you have for us for next week? Yeah, I, I um I think we're gonna switch gears a little bit. Um and uh there's a couple of well there's a a whole ton of um Shakespeare adaptations on film. In fact, adapting Shakespeare was one of the earliest of the films back in 1895, 96, a short film of Shakespeare's play King John was one of the earliest films in English. So I want to do a couple of uh, Shakespearean adaptations. And I have to say, before I say what I want to do next week, Sam, I'll tell you what we can't do next week because it's not widely available. But what would be, for those of you who have access to other sources of film besides um, Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime. The perfect follow-up to this film would be uh, Julie Taymor's Titus Andronicus with Anthony Hopkins, uh, and it's definitely a Grand Guignol entertainment. Um, it would have been a perfect segue into Shakespearean adaptation, um, but not widely available. So that's a recommendation. So what we're going to do, we're going to play it much safer next week, and we're going to watch um, one of Orson Welles' masterpieces, uh, Chimes at Midnight. Uh, which is available on Amazon Prime in a beautiful Criterion uh, a restoration. Uh, so it's 1966, and um, uh, I think it's one of the crown jewels in Wells's career. Well, I am so excited for this. This is on my um, it's on my watch list of things that I that I want to get to this summer. So I guess I'm getting to it right away. Sure. Um, so I'm very excited. I have only. I have for Wells. I've only seen Citizen Kane, and then I watched in high school. I watched the Macbeth that he did because it was the only Macbeth movie I could get my hands on. Um, uh, but so I'm really, really excited to see this. Um, wow, uh, Barrett, thank you so much for for recommending Silence of the Lambs for having this conversation. Um, it's probably a movie I, I was kind of scared to go back to because I just didn't know what it was going to be, and now it's a movie that I regard so much differently because uh, I also felt like I just understood it better. There were all kinds of plot points. I think I didn't get the first yeah. time through. Cause I was, I think I was so worried about what might happen that <laughs> I like, like the stuff with the moths and butterflies. I like, I, I knew the iconography from the poster, but I was like, yeah, I don't really get what that's about. I, in fact, I don't know if you had asked me before I watched this to explain the title, mm -hmm. I would say they say something about like, lambs and slaughter but i don't understand what that mm -hmm. was about because i think i was too worried about everything else mm -hmm. that i to, to know that but it's like well, actually that it it makes perfect sense and it fits in with what they're talking about and fits in with this backstory so i'm so happy to have watched this movie again i'm going to try to convince my wife that i think she would really love watching it again i think that it uh it it, it you know we were worried last week whether it holds up i think it uh, i think it absolutely does, it does. Um, that yeah, that is all the time that we have for this week, but we will be back next week to talk about Chimes at Midnight in the video store. <laughs> <laughs>